Uh, when I first became a Christian in college, I came out like a cannonball. Uh, I um, read the Bible, attended church, attended lots of churches. I was like a church junkie. I went to all kinds of churches all at the same time. Um, shared faith with anybody on the college campus who acted like they might kind of want to hear. And so I was leading a Bible study um, in the student union. And there was, a, there was a girl in there. She said she would like more. She would like to go deeper into the scriptures. Could we meet throughout the week also? I said, that would be fantastic. We can meet you know, a couple extra times and, and, and really go through these, through, through these books of the Bible. Now, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Ashley Woody, she said, that girl's not wanting to do Bible study. She just wanting to hang out with you all week. To which I said, Ashley, why are you girls so competitive and so petty and so catty like she wants to study the scriptures and I can help so so we'll do that and we did we met several times a week for several weeks now at one point after a couple after several weeks the the gal she she closes the bible at the end of one of them she goes Garrett I have a question I said okay what is it and she said I want to know when will my sexual needs be met in this relationship and I said say what I had to say the words that week, which I have said many times since then, a couple of times this week. Ashley, you were right. You was right. So I told that girl, unfortunately, we couldn't meet for Bible study anymore. But there were lots of fine girls there at our school who could help guide her. And she clearly needed some guidance. Um, and so that was that. Well, the next week, I was talking to a different person about faith. We were in the computer lab. And... Um, and they asked me about Christian's view of sexuality, so I was talking about that with this girl, the one who just left the Bible study. She walked up right into our conversation and said, there's no use talking to him. He believes people should only have sex when they want to have babies. And I said, you know, that's not true. We've, we've talked about that before. And she just laughed and walked away, and it was the last time we ever talked about Jesus or the Bible or really much of anything at all. Why do people believe that Christians think this way? Why do people believe that the, the Christian view of sexuality is it's very taboo and mechanical and only for babies and that sort of thing? Uh, it's actually not hard to know why they think that. It's because the church has handled this topic very, very poorly for you know a couple thousand years. Uh, even up until today, there have been concerted efforts by the church around the world to hush up all talk about sex and sexuality, it goes on even in our own community now. Now, it's not hard to understand why churches would try to do that. I mean, they're trying to curb sexual temptation. They're trying to reduce the pain that's brought on by sexual immorality. And there's no question that sexual immorality is painful. Uh, look at how our own culture, what we suffer in our own culture since the sexual revolution of the, of the 60s. Uh, more sickness associated with sex than ever before in the history of humanity. More confusion about sex and sexuality. More hurt. And even more deaths. Even more deaths. What could I be talking about? If you take all the wars America has ever fought in, from the Revolutionary War to the current conflicts, and you take all the American casualties of all those conflicts and put them together, they are still less, still less, than those who have died of sexually transmitted diseases in America and abortion. And that's just since the 70s. And it is 60 times more. 60 times more. We have pacifists, but we have no one addressing the pain caused by 
the sexual revolution and those changes. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, told us in the scriptures that this would happen. He said, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. But I'm actually not going to preach that this morning. Because that's been preached for 2,000 years. And we're still right where we are, right? It hasn't changed us. It hasn't helped us. It doesn't help folks. Hushing up sexuality in the church is not even the Bible's teaching on how to deal with temptation and to uh, uh, reduce the pain of sexual immorality. It's not even the Bible's prescription for how to do that, especially not for young people, especially not in the internet age, especially not in the internet age. Uh, Our college interns are joining our staff meeting for the summer, and they shared with us that if you're waiting until age 12 to have the, the talk with your kids, you are two or three years too late especially if you give them a phone or access to a tablet or computer, they have already read everything, you already seen everything that you have to say. Hushing up sexuality is not what works. Here's what we've got to do. As Christians, we must paint a more beautiful picture of passion for our children and our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, and our friends and our community. We have to paint a more beautiful picture of passion than the picture our world is giving us. We have to crowd out evil with good. We have to flood out darkness with light. We have to defeat the lies of the world with the truth of God. So when folks are curious about sex, and they are curious, the Song of Solomon in the Bible pulls back the curtain and says, well, look at this. Look at the power of this. And that's what we're here to study this morning is this Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon, one of the only books of the Bible that uh, ancient Jews and some ancient Christians uh, tried hard to get rid of. But the Holy Spirit has seen to it that this book has remained in the scriptures for us to learn from today. We're just looking at the first chapter and a little bit of the second chapter today. And when you read just the opening of the Song of Solomon, you find things like a couple fantasizing about being intimate with each other. Somewhat explicitly, especially considering it's a 3,000-year-old document. Um, While the king was on his couch, my nard, that's a perfume, my nard gave forth its fragrance. It is a perfume. (laughs) First service didn't give me this trouble. Um, While the king was on his couch, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a bag of myrrh. Myrrh is also a perfume. I think at that time one mostly that men would put in their hair. My beloved is to be a bag of myrrh that lies between my breasts. There's an image for you. You read in Song of Solomon about a girl chasing a boy. I thought ancient people didn't do that. Wrong. She's almost stalking this shepherd boy. And she's driving all his his friends crazy too. Uh, Here it is. Tell me, this is her, tell me whom my, whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who's veiled beside the flocks of your companions? So a veiled woman is like a prostitute. So she's saying, why should I be like a prostitute who has to hang out with your buddies and wait for you to come back from the fields? Tell me where you're going to be this afternoon. 
And then he says, if you don't know, O fairest of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your kids besides the shepherd's tent. He's like teasing her. Come find me, girl. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Did he just compare her to a horse? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But there's a reason why. There was a story at that time. I believe it was legendary even at that time. But remember, people really feared uh, uh, Pharaoh and the uh, army of the Egyptians' chariots. That was like the war machine of the day, pulled by these stallions. They ride over people. And so there was a story that the, the, the Pharaoh was getting ready to attack these helpless desert people when one of the farmers took a mare in heat and released it onto the battlefield. And then all Pharaoh's stallions got really distracted and kind of were less into charging and more into other things. And so they won the war. And he's saying, girl, when, when you get among my friends, you're like that. When you get in among the boys, there's a lot of snorting and stamping and everybody's nervous and noticing that you are there, girl. And that's what it says in Song of Solomon. Um, they're so hot for each other, they get exhausted, exhausted just thinking about it. Their love is, is wearing them out, she says. Um, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Oh, that his left hand were under my head and that his right hand would embrace me. Sounds like a John Mayer song. This song is really very girl-oriented. Um, 61% of the dialogue in this poem is, is, the, is the woman talking, which is unusual for books of the Bible. And most of the other talk is her talking with the chorus of other girls, her friends, who are kind of cheering on this whole relationship. This is reality. This is how it goes. Um, when, when there's a, a, a group of girls and one of them falls in love and starts dating, what do the others do? Shun her? No. They gather around. They want to hear all the stories, especially if it's a boy they kind of all liked. How did she do it? How did she land him? What's going on in this relationship? And so they all, they kind of hold court. Um, they're in my daughter's room or somebody's daughter's room. And, they, you know, they all want to hear the stories. And so uh, that's what girls do. And so here she is in verse two. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. She's like, all the girls like you. Dance, uh, draw, draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then there holding court, she comes to the main idea. Chapter 2, verse 7. I abjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the wild does. Do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. And that one line there is the main idea of Song of Solomon. Why do we say that? Because of this eight-chapter poem, that's the only line that's repeated four times. It reappears in chapter 3, reappears in chapter 5, reappears in chapter 8. This, this young girl, this this. Uh, uh, the only one of them so far who's fallen in love, she gathers her crowd around and she says, I abjure you, I warn you, I warn you girls, daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles and the wild doves, don't stir up or awaken love until it's ready. She's saying, look, this is powerful what's happening to me. This is beautiful and this is exciting. But don't wake this up in your life until you can consummate it, until you can see it through. 
until you can be married, which happens here in a couple of chapters. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But when that happens, she says, enjoy it to the fullest. You can enjoy it before God. There is no shame. Here it is, a book of the Bible that man has never been able to get rid of. Enjoy it before your whole village. And they did that back then. They literally gathered outside your tent on your wedding night and, and went, la, 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 la. they do that still today in some cultures. And they did it back then. In fact, a uh, little Bible trivia. Ever heard the verse, uh, make a joyful noise before the Lord? If you read the Hebrew, it literally says, uh, sing the la, la, la song. There it is. Um, so uh, celebrate it before your family. Your whole family knows what's going on. You know, pretty soon your family's like, when are we going to have grandkids? Like, whoa, I thought you didn't want me to. Well, now you're married. So, you know, let's get some grandkids. Um, your church, celebrate in front of your church. Celebrate it in front of the whole world. There's no shame or inhibition when you set this love loose. That's what our world needs to hear. That's the message our children need, our grandchildren, our nieces, nephews, our community. That's, that's what the world needs. Now, they may not like it. It may seem too old-fashioned. Last time I checked, uh, 67% of people don't wait for marriage. But still 33% do. They may not follow it. But that's really not what we're here for in church, to, to say things we think people will like, or we say things, to say things they may actually you know, do. We're here to tell the truth, the best truth we can give. We're here to give the best truth we can give. And that is that what our world is offering as sexuality is not making people happy. 25% of marriages experiencing adultery, half a million abortions before this year is over, and another half a million next year, and probably the year after that. Child abuse and the sexualization of of children rampant. 67% of uh, men in the church addicted to pornography. 16% of American men paying for sex. And look at all the sex scandals among pastors, my own profession. Just in the last year, is this happiness? Is this joy? Perhaps the God who invented love, he knows best how love works. And perhaps the God who knows best how love works also knows best how to teach about love. And it's not with scary stories and it's not with awkward silence or hushing everyone up. It's by painting a beautiful and an exciting and a true picture of what it is. Something worth looking forward to and worth doing right. So we as a church ought to partner with our God and proclaim the word of God which says, Yes, you are meant to be excited about sex. Yes, even to dream and wonder about it, that's going to happen. Yes, to anticipate it with great excitement. Yes, it makes you feel a little weird and a little excited and a little exhausted. Yes, it unites you. That other person's name becomes like a spell cast over you. Just keep all that power inside of a marriage where there is no shame. Where there's less risk of hurt, I won't say none, but less. Less risk of confusion. When problems do arise, you have each other to work it out. You're not alone. You can raise kids, whether you were exactly planning on having them at exactly at that time or not. You can work through hurts. You can work through those self-image issues and encourage and lift one another up after the world has beaten you down. Because you've given each other 
the gift of each other. And inside the safety of those vows, there's a lot of healing and excitement and exploration that can be done. And this is how the message our Lord would have us give to our families and to our world. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that your spirit through your word would heal us, encourage us, lift us up, and that we would partner with you in proclaiming the good news of love that you have given in all of its shapes and forms and all of its mysteries. May we trust you, Lord, because this is too mysterious for us. No one understands this like you do. Help us to learn from you and your spirit in Jesus' name. Now, no one should leave here today in shame. No one should leave here today. There was nothing shameful in this chapter. This was a, a, this was a chapter that's a little, pretty wild and spicy, actually, in my opinion, for a Bible thing. But uh, nothing about it was shameful or putting anyone down. All right? That is just the devil to come in to steal joy. So if someone's like, well, I didn't follow this pattern. I didn't do it this way. So, like, you know, what happens? Don't you already know the answer to that? I mean, hasn't the Holy Spirit already taught your heart that God takes you where you are and says, come onto the path with me and let's start a journey? The past is the past. What did we sing earlier? Nothing we've ever done was too much for you to handle on the cross. That's the meaning of that cross. You already knew that. You just came because it was too good to be true and you wanted to see if you got that right. So if I can do that for you as a preacher, I'll say, you got that right. God wants to take you onto the path right where you are and let's go forward. Some of you are saying, I did obey this pattern, and it actually didn't turn out all that great. Sexuality is hard, everyone. It's difficult. It's, it's tricky. We're going to keep learning from God and this word together. We can deal with those issues here. We can do this as a community together. We're going we're gonna to continue in the Song of Solomon, and we're going to kind of make our own, like, summer of love here, here in July. And so, so come back, and we will, we will talk about those things, and we will deal with those things. Now, some of you are asking right now, some of you more brainy types, you're like, didn't you just teach that wrong? Because I'm pretty sure that I heard that this actually isn't a poem about love between uh, man and woman, but it's actually a, a poem about love between God and people. That's exactly what we're going to deal with next week. A little spoiler alert, I didn't teach it wrong, but you're not wrong either. You're not wrong either. There are, that, that what you're describing is there and is a part of our faith. So come back next week. 